Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to episode number 10 of season 4 of the Page Turners Podcast. I am your host, Elgin Bailey, a.k.a. Big L, where I'm thinking here is we are creating liberation through pages. Liberation through pages. The Page Turners. Creating liberation through pages pages each season we pick a particular book that will assist in our liberation and fighting oppression in every form of fashion season four we have chosen the myth and propaganda of black mind power by dr jared a ball a couple of housekeeping things i guess what we say here in media land uh, there is a new series that I'm going to be introducing in the midst of the typical readings. I'm going to be interviewing everyday people about what they are reading. Uh, literally, there are going to be segments added to the Page Turner's episodes, which will be anywhere from three to five minutes, uh, maybe shorter of people sharing what they are reading, why it's important, and how it is assisting in their liberation. And then I'm going to have a larger, uh, where actually be videos, 30 to 45 minute videos, where I'll interview people on the book that they're reading currently and how that book has assisted in their liberation. Really excited about that. Really, really, really super duper excited about that. But uh, that's enough housekeeping. That's enough me talking about things that folks want to hear, but don't want to hear me go in depth about because you didn't come to hear that. You came to hear me read about or read the myth and propaganda of black buying power by Dr. Jared A. Ball. So Uh, I gave you a good two minutes of nothing, so let's go ahead and dive into the text. We are moving to chapter five. Chapter five is titled, The Myth at Play, The Oh-So-Subtle Environment. The abstract reads, Despite appearances, the media system in the United States is far more commercial, consolidated in ownership, with content-driven advertising which is far more pervasive and penetrative than many realize or are made aware. It is a media environment specifically for the purposes of propaganda and therefore must be suited to that function. The myth of buying power relies heavily on this media environment and thrives accordingly as a result. This point will be demonstrated via the coverage, promotion of buying power, and related subjects conducted since 2009. And I continue to read. A recent expose about the relationship between Fox News and the current White House quoted a former head of the Federal Communications Commission, FCC, responding to the idea that the news channel had created the Trump presidency. Quote, As Reed Hunt sees it, said the story, Murdoch didn't invent Trump, but he invented the audience. Murdoch was going to make Trump 
and make a Trump exist. Then Trump comes along, sees all these people and says, I'll be the ringmaster in your circus. Wow. The century-long construction of our media environment designed to reduce and equate citizen to consumer has made all but meaningless nominal differences in ownership with audience creation the perfect circus for buying power mythology to ringmaster. With everyone chasing the same multi-million dollar advertising pool, commercial media become more suited to those commercial interests, be they labeled black media white or any other myths like the black buying power require the audience we have all largely become an audience held captive from birth one prime for all that nicely wrapped commercially packaged messaging the previously mentioned fishbowl in which we find ourselves serves quite well the function of propaganda our creation is McLuhan, Fish allows more easily our creation as an audience acceptable, prepared for, accepting, even falsely aware of the messaging impacting our daily behavior. Brand management, labeling, and an apparent endless amount of choice for our media diets has made awareness of the constructed nature of our environment more difficult to identify. But despite appearances today, Fewer own more pervasive and penetrative media power with an impact that is vastly underappreciated than at any point in human history. Nearly all we see, read here, is determined by corporations and or private equity groups themselves interlocked and largely politically in accord with one another. It is precisely this problem, an arrangement of all commercial media environment and journalistic practice that has aided, if not entirely propelled, the myth of buying power. There's a section here that I want to read again for you. Nearly all we see, read, and hear is determined by corporations and or private equity groups themselves interlocked and largely politically in accord with one another. It is precisely this problem and arrangement of a commercial media environment and journalistic practice that has aided, if not entirely, propelled the myth of buying power. I'm going to highlight that because I'm coming back to it. And I read, in what she describes as a plague of news sources and modes of circulation, Nancy Cott has appropriately summarized the evolution of our current media environment as being developed largely over just the last roughly 25 years and in two phases. Phase one, the initial 1990s commercial capture of our national cable networks by Fox, MSNBC, CNBC, and Bloomberg. Then the second phase of the new millennium internet and social media rise of Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Most relevant here is that what Coates concludes we are left with is a kind of personalized, tailored view of the world provided for each of us in ways we have been constructed to accept. As she says, The essential network aspect of the web means that any information easily reproduces itself and generates links that connect it to similar or related information. 
The making and promulgation of news are tied together perhaps more tightly than ever before in that whatever becomes most intensely circulated and replicated through instantaneous media becomes the most pressing news. Thus, circulation makes the news more than simply transmitting it. This multiplication and fractionization leads away from the creation of common knowledge and toward the vision of populace into niche publics whose knowledge worlds intentionally seek replenishment from sources that reinforce accustomed attitudes and partisan leanings. Here he's speaking deeply about how propaganda works and the role of media. And I read, Another microcosmic example of the impact of this media environmental arrangement summarizes the issue well. A study that encapsulates the crisis in corporate control media was released by the Pew Center for the People and Press in 2010. It examined in exhaustive detail the media ecology, ecology, I'm destroying that right now, I apologize, of the city of Baltimore for one week in 2009. The object was to determine how in this changing media moment, original news stories were being generated and by whom. They tracked old media and new, newspapers, radio, television, websites, blogs, and even Twitter tweets from the police department. What did they find? The first conclusion from the researchers was an unsettling one. Despite the seemingly proliferation of media, the researchers observed that much of the news people receive contains no original reporting. Finally, 8 out of 10 stories studied simply repeated or repackaged previously published information. And where did the original reporting come from? More than 95% of original news stories were still generated by old media, particularly the Baltimore Sun newspaper. In other words, a great many of the much heralded online sites, even some that proudly label themselves as news operations, simply disseminated what was being produced by traditional old media. It gets worse. The Sun's population of original news stories was itself down more than 30% from 10 years ago, and down a whopping 73% from 20 years ago. The bottom line is this. Old media outlets are downsizing and abandoning journalism, and new media are not even beginning to fill the void. And I've noticed that too, that when reading a story, I'll find a story online and, you know, um, type it in some search engine, and pull the story up, and you'll typically see a number of stories around that same subject or topic, right? And then you read the first story. So, like, you, your interest is peaked, and you want more information, and you want to know more about what's taking place, so you click the next link for the story. But then when you click the next link, the stories are essentially the same. They're quote driven from the first article. There's no new information. It's literally like they did nothing more than regurgitate what the original old media stated. And I read, 
Circulating stories consumed by isolated and segmented publics without sufficient vetting make fertile ground for the development of myth into axiom. Tracking, as I have since 2009, the transmission of the myth of black buying power, it is readily apparent that Cott's knowledge worlds are easily developed today to include significant segments of the black community who accept it without question. The two primary sources of the myth, Selig and Nielsen, have their claims circulated endlessly and used to promote an economic power black people simply do not have, or at best, which cannot be conveyed into terms of buying power. Again, remember, the two, the only two, or I won't say the only, the two primary sources of the myth of black buying power are the Selig Center and Nielsen. Nowhere else are you able to find the data that you need for this particular topic. And it's disheartening. And I continue to read. Okay. Peeling back layers since 2009 has uncovered a plague of news sources and modes of circulation which propel and protect the myth of black buying power by what has felt at times to be an impenetrable barrier. From my initial commentary, it was clear that widely reported claims of black buying power went both unchecked and were themselves contrived of some truly spurious methods. First, there was the problem of presentation. The myth that year, as is routine, was presented by commercial press as news, then the African-American black market profile, but as I noted at the time, rarely is it reported by outlets carrying these press releases that have their goal is to, quote, gather and synthesize the most recent findings from dozens of sources in order to help marketers communicate more effectively with these important consumer segments. And again, these claims were based on projections and wild exploitations, like, for instance, claiming the power could be associated with the amount of black people earning $50,000 annually, finally crossing the 30% mark when the already oddly low poverty line of $20,000 annually for a household of four set an artificial standard. Further, I noted then that Selig's justification for suggesting a black economic clout was in the ability for black consumption to energize the U.S. consumer market as never before. The, the report would go on to further support its conclusions with equally unscientific methods. If the goal is to assess actual economic or material conditions, such as black population growth, Increased job opportunities, more education for Black America, only 8.1% of Black America is over 65 years of age or at career pinnacles, at which point wage increases decelerate, whereas whites are 13.5% over 65 years of age. Black people spend more than non-blacks on natural gas, electricity, telephone services, and footwear, and a higher proportion of their money on groceries, housing, and women's and girls' clothing. And this author's personal favorite, that despite a substantial gap in home ownership rates, this suggests a possible opportunity for market expansion in years ahead. Wow. 
What appeared at the time as an inconsistent by now is understood as inevitable. Consumer spending rebranded as economic clout with news of a economic power among black people defined as the ability to energize the economy is precisely what buying power as a concept was developed to do. As was previously said about the GDP, to energize the economy is to enrich those who own what is purchased and does not help explain the actual condition of the purchaser. Jeez. What appeared at the time as an incons- as inconsistency by now is understood as inevitable. Consumer spending rebranded as economic clout with news of an economic power among black people defined as the ability to energize the economy is precisely what buying power as a concept was developed to do. As we previously stated about GDP, to energize the economy is to enrich those who own what is purchased and does not help explain the actual condition of the purchaser. That's crucial, fam. And I read, what was particularly striking at the time was that not long before the release of that particular CILIC report, the Economic Policy Institute published a relatively underpromoted, circulated, or reference report by their own describing more accurately the permanent recession faced by black Americans, saying, I quote, even when the national unemployment picture is good, the black unemployment rate is more than twice that of white unemployment rates. This means that in what looks like good economic times nationally, most of black America is still experiencing a recession. When white America is in a recession, black America is in an economic depression. I got to read that one more time. Even when the national unemployment picture is good, the black unemployment rate is more than twice that of white unemployment rate. This means that in what looks like good economic times nationally, most of black America is still experiencing a recession. When white America is in a recession, black America is in an economic depression. Jeez. And I read, reports like these from EPI get far less media or press attention than do the more heavily propagated headlines professing black buying power, especially when so much of the commercial black press is involved and invested in producing those headlines and reports they mention. Traditional class, business, or anti-labor biases in commercial media are often involved leaving plenty of room for public relations, marketing claims such as those promoting black buying power. For instance, and only related to a timeline created by my initial commentary on buying power and not at all meant to ignore a tradition of long-existing critical research on related subjects, right around the time of that 2009 commentary came a report from Derek Hamilton a well-regarded economist and researcher of black economics, that report read in part that, quote, the wealth gap is the most accurate, acute indicator of racial inequality. Based on data from the 2002 Survey of Income and Program Participation, white median household net worth is about $90,000. 
In contrast, it is only about $8,000 for the median Latino household and a mere $6,000 for the median black household. The median Latino or black households would have to save nearly 100% of its income for at least three consecutive years to close the gap. Furthermore, 85% of black and Latino households have a net worth below the median white household, regardless of age, household structure, education, occupation, or income. Black households typically have less than a quarter of the wealth of otherwise comparable white households. But in a media environment where our content is largely, in quotations, entirely determined by advertisers and not owners, editors, and producers, and so on, there's little room for reports like those from Hamilton to be covered and discussed. Instead, More popularly covered marketing reports are promoted, supported by the commentary of many leading black spokespeople with no investigation of the claims, their origins, or their methods used to reach the conclusions. Not long after Hamilton's report came the following from BET, a black targeting media outlet owned by Viacom, which claimed, and I quote, the percentage of blacks in America is growing. And so is the amount of money blacks have available to spend on goods and services, according to a study released this week. The African Americans Revealed study, based on a BET survey of 80,000 black consumers over 18 months and showed a 10% increase in America's black population between 2000 and 2008, and 55% increase in black buying power over the same period. According to the survey, black buying power is estimated now at about $913 billion and is projected to increase to $1.2 trillion by 2013. A similar study released in November by the Selig Center at the University of Georgia estimated that black buying power would be around $1.1 trillion by 2014, with current spending power for blacks at about $910 billion. End quote. Further, the original story's inclusion of a comment from Boyce Watkins, believed by some to be a leading economist focusing on black condition, as if to knowingly further <laughs> concretize the myth's most dastardly claims, said of the report that, unfortunately, When African-Americans make money, we spend it. We don't use it to invest or produce. When we get our tax refunds, we go straight to the store. I swear I hate that bullshit right there. This idea that as soon as we get money, that we run out to the store and spend it, that we don't pay our bills, we don't seek to create opportunities for our families and ourselves. And I read, on some level, it has to be considered that buying power goes unquestioned by even those who some might think should know better, in part because of the myth's longevity and its pervasiveness. In addition to the historic rise of the myth and its acceptance by entire black political 
and class spectrum, the myth has garnered tremendous press coverage from within that troubled media environment designed itself to serve interests, which are the commercial and domestic equivalent to psychological worldview warfare. So, for example, from what appears to be among the best reports offered by Jeffrey Humphreys of the Selig Center in 1995, Black Buying Power by Place of Resonance, 1990 to 1995. Although, 2018, they were more than 600 news stories carried nationally, which specifically referenced both buying power in conjunction with Black American Selig Center. And there are many more thousands where only buying power is mentioned, where either the reference is to Nielsen or where none is offered at all. And beyond that, there are hundreds of thousands of stories annually where buying power is discussed for what it is, a marketing referencing targeting every known segment of formation of society, business, or municipality. But as it pertains specifically to Black America, that is 25 stories minimum carried nationally in news outlets, big and small, every year for the last 25 years, all referencing reports from the CELIC and with tremendous rare exception without a single question about the veracity or meaning of the buying power claim. Further, it is important to note that the numbers of research references to buying power in print publications is of just that. ProQuest database searches are most mostly print publications and do not count household uh, thousands of web page references to buying power with little evidence of any of those references offering any critique or of investigation of the claim or its origins. Nor does the database track the incalculable references to buying power in speeches sermons, activism meetings, and other forms of media, radio, or video production. As it pertains to the black press, both presses owned by black people or which target black audiences, one of the more popular outlets, The Root, described as one of three, the Grio and Bl- Bl- what is it, Blavivity? Blavivity? I, I don't never understand how to pronounce that shit. Uh, B-L-A-V-I-T-Y. And I read, digital outlets have some of the highest readership numbers among millennials and Gen Z age groups. The only identified critiques of buying power in two pieces which reference me or my work. As for the National Newspapers Publishing Associations, the more than 70-year-old Trade Association for Black Press currently lists 158 members representing 205 publications across 29 states and the District of Columbia, whose collective reaches more than 20 million readers per week. The NNPA new papers online garner 35 million page views per month on social media have no identifiable coverage or inclusion of critique of the concept. Of course, as discussed, the NNPA helps produce buying power reports. Damn. And I read, however, what is also demonstrated by the NNPA's relationship to the construction of buying power reports and the subsequent form taken by commercial 
press coverage of their claims are the broader historical concerns surrounding commercial interests taking precedence over journalistic ones. For another example, in 2013, I was contacted by Stacey Brown, reporting then for the Washington Informer, an NNPA member, and asked about my work on buying power. After the story's publication, I wrote Ms. Brown and mentioned one or two errors in quoting me. But as I said, my only issue is that you didn't leave room for any of the study critique of how they reached these really misleading numbers, which makes my quote about system seem like just talking. You don't link to my piece or reference any of the real research I put in to debunk the numbers these studies keep claiming. This leads to more confusion about how poverty works, and you end up supporting the myth that we just spend ourselves out of opportunities, even as you quote accurately studies that demonstrate black homes are purposely devalued, which exposes the lie that poverty is anything but the result of intentional discriminatory practices against black and poor people deadlines, editors, etc. I get it, but I do admit to having had higher hopes. <laughs> Brown's response. Doctor, my, mention, my intention certainly was to properly represent your thoughts. I will review with my editors originally much of your calm. <laughs> it ends abruptly there. Ten minutes later, she added only, much of your comments were redacted. My sincere apologies. The story itself has been removed from the website. But Brown was back again recently with a piece for the NNPA Newswire, a bite title with a bit more accuracy. Marketers should show more respect for the black consumer, according to a report. Within the article, you guessed it. Brown references, again, uncritically, another Nielsen executive in her claim of the $1.3 trillion in buying power. So just going to keep regurgitating the same myth, even after it's checked, even after someone says, hey, not only did you misquote me, but you might want to research this information that you're putting out. Because, yeah, it's bullshit. And I read, shortly thereafter, another similar press encounter occurred, this time with the white mainstream. Popular repetition of the myth without attribu attribution, explanation, or investigation of the claims occurs nearly without exception, allowing both commercial black and white press to promote the myth over historic or existing criticisms for their own overlapping political and economic interests. This was indeed the case again in February of 2014 when the National Public Radio's marketplace contacted me to discuss buying power in light of yet another reported claim of its existence and increase, as happened before. With various media outlets, I was initially invited to give a pre-recorded interview about black buying power, was not told of any other guests or what they might say. As it turned out, my comments were cut short, and more time was made for Cheryl Pearson McNeil, a senior vice president at Nielsen, who was there to talk about their own report. <laughs> oh, man. This is... <laughs> what in the world? 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners. I am your host, Elgin Bailey, as we continue to unpack and discuss this myth of black buying power. We're learning and seeing how it is propagated, who it is propagated by, and damn it, if it is not many within the black media class pushing this sort of nonsense and rhetoric. But again, till next time, this is the Page Turners, where we believe in liberation through reading. This broadcast is distributed by KeystoneDigital.tv. Till next time, family. I'm out.